We'll have uh, small groups tonight, uh, <clears throat> about 8.35. And I'll say a little bit more about that right before we start the small groups. One of the things that we're aiming for with this mindfulness of the body is this sense of integrity or this experience of body, body sensation, uh, that's not manipulative. Like it doesn't, the experience of sensation doesn't have an agenda. The thinking mind can have an agenda to get rid of something or to make some nice experience happen or to shape something in a particular way, make something seem this way or that way. But um, body sensations in and of themselves, they're not lying, they're not manipulative, they're just what they are. And there's a sense of that, like when we have that, whether you call it bare awareness, bare attention, or that clear, this first stage, remember the first week I talked about these three stages of practice that are described in the Satipatthana Sutta. The short version is seeing, experience, knowing the body in and of itself. In this way, one remains focused internally on the body in and of itself, or externally on the body in and of itself, or both internally, externally on the body in and of itself. So not in terms of the world, or the world of our ideas. And then over the last, uh, I think last week, we spent a lot of time talking about just the healing that arises when there's that whole body awareness. Some of you know that there's a collection in the Pali Canon, this collection of teachings of the Buddha, but also from other people around the time of the Buddha. And there's a particular section that's a collection of the enlightened enlightenment songs of the nuns and monks. And so this is one and generally you'd write your enlightenment poem before you die. So keep it in mind. In this one, this monk wrote or said, How light my body, touched by abundant rapture and bliss, like a cotton tuff born on the breeze, it seems to be floating my body. So uh, often especially when we're older, the body feels like a real burden, a weight that we drag along through our life. And, uh, you know, when it behaves itself, we, you know, good body, good body. And when it doesn't behave itself, you know, bad body. And somehow feel betrayed or like even can think it's out to get me because I'm sick again or the knee hurts again or I'm just so sluggish today. So that's understanding the body in terms of the world. It's like it's so interesting, and you can see this as you experiment, especially in daily life practice with awareness of the body. You can see how much your attitude about the body makes all the difference. Anybody read Darlene Cohen's article that Endra uh, scanned for us? 
from the book Being Bodies. It's a really good article if you haven't read it. So I talked last week about the other article that's from that book by Joko Beck. I think it was titled Our Substitute Life. And then Darlene Cohen, who had uh, rheumatoid arthritis most of her life, adult life, um, just talking about working with that. And part of what she says, she says a lot of things, but part of what she says is how much the attitude is behind what we take to be the experience of the body. Like we assume we're feeling the body, but mostly what we feel, what we know, is the attitude in the mind about the body, what the mind is taking the body to be. And it's the same thing with our relationships with other people. We think, oh yeah, whatever feeling I have about this person, that's who that person is. But it's, no, that's, that feeling I have or that experience that I have is the idea I have about that person. That's what we're experiencing. The idea we have about the body or about the injury in the body or about the age of the body or whatever, you know, we think we're actually directly, immediately experiencing. And this is tricky because it seems like, you know, oh, no, no, I'm really absorbed in the body. It's not easy for us, as I mentioned both last week and the week before, it's not easy, even this first stage of mindfulness, experiencing the body in and of itself. We want to keep an open mind that we, that may be a place we visit in moments, but maybe aren't able to sustain that awareness. Because the experience of the body is quite different than our normal idea of the body. So when we experience the body in and of itself, we have, like this monk explains, how light my body, touched by abundant rapture and bliss, like a cotton tuft born on the breeze, it seems to be floating my body. Right, Because it's the attitude in the mind that, in a sense, bumps up, creates something of substance, you know, my burdensome body, the resistance the mind has. But when the movement of sensation, right, because that's what sensation, physical sensation is, it's a movement. And when that movement of sensation isn't meeting any mental resistance, well, what's that experience? When sensations are arising and passing, they're moving, but there's nothing in one's experience that's resisting the movement of sensation. Well, the absence of resistance is what we call joy. A lot of times we think joy is something. But joy is actually the absence of resistance to life or all aspects of life, which is movement. That's what life is. Thought moves, sensation moves, sound moves. Everything is a natural movement. And then through the activity of a neurotic mind, we can construct the sense of resistance not liking the movement or wanting to hold on to the movement. And then life and the body, because that's what we're studying these seven weeks, can feel quite substantial and problematic. So 
So let me just read. Uh, so I mentioned last week, and I'll just mention briefly again this week. You know, the Buddha talks about how protecting it is to go through life immersed in the body. Because the absorption, being in the body, and healing the mind's relationship to the world by having a really good relationship to the body. And see, then it protects us. If we have a disconnected relationship to the body, or if we're experiencing the body uh, through the filter of our opinions and ideas, or dualistic ideas of good and bad, then that relationship, the mind's relationship with the body, is going to define, affect all of our other relationships to whatever else we experience moment by moment. But if we have this awareness immersed in the body and we're allowing the body to be in and of itself, we're not filtering it, we're not projecting anything on it, then as other phenomena arise, like a thought, a worry, an re- emotional reaction, that will also be seen in and of itself. The mind won't be confused because it's already in the mode of being with the body in a non-confused way. So then it's more likely to be able to relate to other phenomena that arise, sights, sounds, thoughts, emotions, in a non-confused way. So here's one example of the Buddha really promoting a mind immersed in the body. Suppose practitioners that a large crowd of people comes thronging together saying, the beauty queen, (laughs) the beauty queen, or we could say, you know, an attractive person, an attractive person. And suppose that attractive person is highly accomplished at singing and dancing so that an even greater crowd comes thronging saying, the attractive person is singing, the attractive person is dancing. Then a person comes along who's attracted to that attractive person, right? Desiring life, shrinking from death, desiring pleasure, and abhorring pain, right? Like an ordinary human being who finds that dancing, singing person really attractive, right? So suppose that person comes along and they say to him, now look here, mister, missus, you must take this bowl filled to the brim with oil and carry it on your, and carry it on your head, in between the great crowd and the beauty queen, (laughs) the attractive person. A person with a raised sword will follow right behind you. And whenever you spill even a drop of oil right there, this person will cut off your head. Now, what do you think, practitioners? Will that person not paying attention, will that person not paying attention to the bowl of oil let oneself get distracted? No, sir. Right, because that person has a big incentive to be careful. And then the Buddha says, I have given you this parable to convey a meaning. The meaning is this. The bowl filled to the brim with oil stands for mindfulness immersed in the body. Thus you should train yourself. We will develop mindfulness immersed in the body. We will pursue it, give it a means of transport, give it a grounding, we will steady it, consolidate it, and set it about properly. That's how you should train yourself. And the Buddha says later in another sutta, when this is practiced and pursued, 
the body is calmed, the mind is calm, thinking and evaluating are stilled, and all qualities on the side of clear knowledge go to the culmination of their development. Right? All the beautiful supporting qualities of mind go to their development. What is this one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, ignorance is abandoned, clear knowing arises, the conceit I am is abandoned, latent tendencies are uprooted, fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless, which is a simile for Nibbana or enlightenment. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. Those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body are heedless of the deathless. Those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. So as I mentioned the first week, the Buddha gives us different ways, six different ways to be mindful of the body. And over the course of our time together, this course will cover all six. So the first is being mindful of the body. I mean, I'm sorry, mindful of the breath. And then with some stability, some continuity of mindfulness of the breath, then expanding that to be a whole body. So while breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. And letting that really settle things down, that whole body awareness as you're breathing in, as you're breathing out. So that's the first way, one of the ways, one of six ways to sustain this mindfulness immersed in the body. Now I want to read the second two so that you can begin to practice. And you have this handout, Mindfulness of the Body. Um, I think I sent it the first week. And so you can just, like it would be nice, for example, to read it every morning before you start your day. It's very short. And remember the stanza that describes the three ways, the sort of three developments of mindfulness, seeing the body in and of itself, seeing the body in and of itself with enough continuity that you can notice when the mind, the way the mind is relating becomes more skillful, more refined, so there's less agitation, less stress. And you can also notice, because you have enough continuity when your way of being with the present moment or being with the body is unskillful, becoming more distracted or agitated or reactive. So you get that how the mind gets more or less skillful only when there's enough continuity. And so the Buddha talks about seeing what arises and passes, like skillfulness is arising or unskillfulness is arising or passing. So the next one, after mindfulness of the breath and body, the Buddha says, Furthermore, when walking, the practitioner discerns that she is walking. When standing, she discerns that she is standing. When sitting, she discerns that she is sitting. When lying down, she discerns that she's lying down. Or or, however her body is disposed, that is how she discerns it. In this way, she remains focused internally on the body in and of itself or focused externally on the body in and of itself, right? So this is that, those three stages, or both internally and externally. Or she remains focused on the phenomena of arising in regard to the body, or the passing away in regards to the body, or both arising and passing away. Like what's getting set in motion, or what's 
falling away, disappearing from one's experience as she's there with the body. Or one's mindfulness that there is a body is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance and one remains independent, unsustained by not clinging to anything in the world. So there's an awareness of the body and freedom. That's all there's there. Not trying to be skillful even. This is how a practitioner remains focused on the body in and of itself. So that's the second. First is mindfulness of the breath, and then that expands to include the whole body. The second way the Buddha teaches us to be immersed in the body is to be aware of the four postures. Kneeling is like this. Sitting on a chair is like this. If we were standing, we would know we're standing when we're standing. When we're walking, there would be an awareness that walking is happening. How much of the time when we're walking is the mind aware that walking is like this? Or that when we're sitting, there's a clear, resonant presence to the fact that sitting is like this. Or when we're lying. So these four postures of sitting and standing and walking and lying down are a way to develop the continuity of mindfulness of body, the mind immersed in the body. And you could just, like by reading that passage or just simplify it, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of the four postures, just setting that resolve. And it's so simple, like this is by far the most simple of the six trainings. Simply to remember the posture that the body has. And to remember it's relevant. It's not that, it's not relevant because, um, you know, there's something mystical about kneeling or sitting. But it's relevant, it's the immersion, it's the intimate experience of seeing this posture in and of itself because what it does is it heals the mind's relationship to the present moment. We're using the mindfulness of the posture in the middle of the day, many, many times in the middle of the day, to in an instant, just a moment, to heal how the mind is relating to the present moment. Is it relating to filter or through emotions of aversion and greed? Or can it have that very intimate, non-filtered relationship with the posture and then sustain that with the next phenomena it knows and then the next phenomena it knows. And so you can play with this like when you're in conversation, you're walking with a friend or sitting with a friend or lying down with a friend, right? You can go back and forth a moment, literally just a moment, less than a second even, of a deep, penetrating presence, lying down is like this, sitting is like this, walking is like this. And then the next moment can be right back into you know awareness of what you're saying or awareness of what you're hearing or awareness of the connection you have with that person you're interacting with. And you can see, like we'll do this in the small groups tonight, how uh, we always say this for those who are new to the Buddhist studies, and maybe I'll just remind you right now, because I usually do it right before the small groups. But if you really want to listen and to be a good friend to the person whose turn it is to speak in the small groups, the best thing you can do is to be intimate with your body. Because 
the mind is very quick. You may think, well, gosh, if I'm totally intimate, continuously intimate with the body, I won't even be aware that they're speaking. But you're going to do exactly what I was describing. There will be some moments of being intimate with the body in and of itself and learning how to be skillful, learning how to let the sensations be what they are without the mind resisting. And then in the next moment or moments, you'll be with the person and what they're saying and what your mind is comprehending in and of itself without putting any spin, without resisting it or judging it in any way. And then intimate with the body and then intimate with the comprehending of what the person is saying and back and forth like that. Because it's a lot easier for us to have a very clear and honest and loving and non-resistant relationship to the body because we've been training, than it is with somebody we don't know. Because we, you know, we have a lot of mental conditioning around judging each other and putting each other along some hierarchical you know, standard and somewhere they're there and we're somewhere else and everybody else is somewhere and now I think this person's a little higher, oh, but then they have a little snot in their nose or a little lower and you know, all these sort of things we can get obsessed about or just being affected by what they're wearing or their body language or, you know, whatever, however we might be. So then when we come back and have a more honest, direct, immediate experience with the body, and then we return and are aware of this person, any corruption, any resistance, any judgment is just going to stand out as a defilement, as a weight, an unnecessary, like a, yeah, something that is worthy of being abandoned, worthy of not paying attention to. So we don't give our attention to it. And then it dies, literally, because we're not obsessing with that particular tendency to judge the person in that way or to react to the person in this way. We're just not giving it attention because when we came back from that moment of having a bit more intimate, relatively speaking, more intimate relationship with the body, and now we're with the other person, it just stands out. Its unskillfulness stands out. And this is the second stage of mindfulness where there's enough continuity that the mind actually begins to understand the difference between relating wisely and relating unskillfully. Because it feels it. You know, we feel when we're relating to somebody with judgment, we feel the contraction. It's, It's not even about that it's harmful to the other person, which of course it is on some at least subtle level. But directly, immediately, we feel how it's harmful to ourselves to be having that judgment, to be identified with the judgment. We can't stop ourselves from having the judgments, but it's that that identification, the mind holding the judgment, identifying with it as the truth for me. right? So, that's how we can use this uh, particular teaching on the four postures. All day long, we can just drop back into the posture, recognize clearly standings like this, and basically heal the relationship with the present moment. And then the next training, this is training number three, you know, is a, a little bit more, uh, I don't know if involved, but it's a little bit more challenging maybe that it really supports more continuity because it's a little bit more interesting than just remembering that 
the body standing or the body sitting or the body's lying down or walking. So the Buddha, excuse me, the Buddha says, furthermore, when going forward and returning, one makes oneself fully alert. When looking forward and looking away, when bending and extending one's limbs, when carrying one's outer cloak, one's upper robe, one's bowl, when eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, when urinating and defecating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and remaining silent, one makes oneself fully alert. And then he repeats that stanza. In this way, one remains focused internally on the body in and of itself, externally on the body in and of itself for both. Or, this is the second stage, one remains focused on what is arising, right, here in the present moment, and what's ceasing. So while aware of the body, or aware of the reaching for the light switch, or chewing on the food, or whatever the body is doing, one notices what's arising and what's passing. Right? Or, and this is the third stage, which is a more in the direction of freedom, an experience of freedom, or one's mindfulness that there is a body that's reaching, or whatever it's doing, is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. So that's like an effortless continuity of awareness. So here, in this third stage, mindfulness is happening on its own. You're not a practitioner trying to be mindful in this third stage. You're, you're experiencing a moment or moments where there's mindfulness and nothing else. So there's activity being known. So that's, there's a lot of liberation in that because there's virtually no neurotic activity. It may be latent, meaning it may be ready to reemerge when the situation shifts, but in those moments of the third stage of practice, you're noticing how easy the practice is, how effortless the practice is. So in that stage, the corruption of your practice is when you neurotically think you need to practice and then you lose it. You lose the freedom, right? But in the earlier stages, thinking you don't have to practice is the cause for your practice to fall apart, right? In the earlier stage, like to see the object in and of itself, you have to try because the habit is to experience my body in terms of my ideas about my body. It's hard to just feel the breath coming in as sensation without some image or some idea of the body breathing in or body breathing out. It's not easy. So we kinda, we have to make the effort to remember sensations in and of themselves or movement or posture in and of itself. So those are the three, first three. So now we have three ways to work on continuity through the day. Mindfulness of breathing, into whole body awareness as you breathe in, whole body awareness as you breathe out, right? We have mindfulness of the four postures. And then generally this third one is called mindfulness of daily activities. So just you're just mindful of whatever is predominant in terms of your bodily activity. So like when you're chewing food, you're also sitting probably, but what's predominant is probably the chewing or the savoring in that moment. So whatever naturally the attention would gravitate in terms of bodily activity, that's the object of awareness, whether like scratching or reaching or aching, whatever it might be. 
Any questions about those three practices? So I'll just mention a few things about the small group. So tonight, and you can reflect on this as I'm talking, I thought what might be useful to share, so I'll give you four options. And, you know, part of what makes these small groups really rich for people is that, you know, you might, as I'm talking, have some thoughts about what you're going to share, but in the moment when it's your turn and you're sitting close together and you've got your three minutes, mostly what you want to do is just trust emergence, as Gregory Kramer says. He talks a lot. He teaches a lot about insight dialogue. He actually does retreats where people do these kind of small group work three times a day as part of a silent retreat. Of course, not in the small groups. Then you're actually in dialogue, but it's a meditation. It's seen as a meditation. So I would use this as a meditation, and we're trusting emergence. So you have been reflecting on mindfulness of body. You will have some things to say. And when you don't have anything to say, just together with the other people in your small group, just sit in silence together. It's totally okay to sit in silence. And then after 20 seconds or 30 seconds, you might have more to say if your time's not up. And then just say some more. And so what you say could be anything related to your practice, but specifically, you can talk about physical pain and your relationship to physical pain. And if you haven't read Darlene's article, you can read it later, but uh, she has a lot to say. I'll just read the last paragraph of her article for those of you who didn't get a chance to read it. This is the last paragraph. People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow, crippling, um, crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again, and I'm flooded with healing energy. So that, this is my interpretation of what you just said from my own experience. When we sit, or whatever particular strategy we're using, we're being mindful of the body, the mind immersed in the body. When we remember that, there's often resistance to being intimate with the body. And the key here is to see that resistance, which he calls the bitterness, right? To see it as a congealed form of life energy, right? So it's like our actual life is bound up in that resistance, the not wanting to feel the body. And all the ways, like some people don't even feel that resistance. They've got such effective defense mechanisms that as the attention goes to the body, it just gets deflected to some thought about the body or some thought that I'll do this later or whatever it is. And it's seamless, the defense of the mind. So when you can start to feel that resistance, you have to tell yourself a a useful story that there's life energy there, that the mind, the heart, the body comes alive when that resistance is included instead of the mind interpreting it as some reason why I shouldn't be with the body. Oh, 
it's really pain. I, I guess I'm not supposed to be intimate with the body because it's like this. So we use the resistance as, excuse, as an excuse. Let me just read a few more sentences here. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. Now, this is a very seasoned practitioner. right? She was the abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center. I've been around that wheel a million times. First, I feel the despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then it tugs, its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. And finally, it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I am caught. So at last I give up this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately the release begins, the first piece, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with happy ending, with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, take me, I'm yours. But I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something else like purification or renewal or something hopeful. Now, some of us with some pains, you know, clearly she's got a heavy dose of pain. For most of us, it's not so heavy. So we get more readily to that place where we have some confidence to just go right in the middle of that we sit down. And even though it's not a pleasant place to be, we just hang in there because we know it feels right to be right in the middle of the body. So this is something you can share about your relationship to pain over the years or months of your practice, what you've learned, what's overwhelming. You can talk about daily life, mindfulness of the body and daily life in places of your life, regular places that are relatively easy for you to be mindful, and then places in your life where you just are not aware at all. That would be an interesting thing to talk out loud with your small group. A third thing you could talk about what we talked about last week and some the first week, which is this full immersion and the samadhi that comes, the healing energy, like when you're really with the body 100%, you really drop neurotic activity 100%. You can't be fully immersed in the body and still busy with neurotic activity. It's just not possible. So the bliss, the joy, the ease, the calm, the peace you've experienced in being in the body, and the lightness, like the quote I read, you know, light is a tuff of cotton, that you've experienced at times versus the times when your body felt like twisted steel that you could share, right? The absence or presence of samadhi and how that changes the reality of the body. The body isn't a thing. The body has everything to do, your experience of the body with the mind that's knowing the body. You can't really tell the difference between the body and the mind that's knowing it. Together, the mind that's knowing it and the body make the experience of the body. So sometimes the body is as light as air and sometimes it's as heavy and difficult as twisted steel because it really matters the mind that's knowing the body. So that's something you can talk about, the relationship of your experience with samadhi. And maybe I'll just leave it there. So those are three topics and of course anything else 
makes sense. Make sure to share your names once you sit down. It's nice to set the order. If you're within earshot of the spell, then you don't need a, somebody to keep time. But if you're somewhere where you won't be hearing the spell, then maybe somebody with a watch can keep track. So three minutes per person, and then the last five to eight minutes for open discussion. And really give each other the three minutes and just sit in silence and just be aware of your body while you're waiting to see if that person has anything more to say during their time. And then just the last point is remember that whatever gets shared in these small groups, it's really not meant to be shared elsewhere so that it's like a safe space for people to say whatever they want to say. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.